Artemis endeavors to get more women in the field and on the water, to support women as leaders in the conservation movement, to ensure the vitality of our lands, waters, and wildlife. Artemis endeavors to change the face of conservation. Hey everyone, welcome to the Artemis podcast. I am your host, Marsha Brownlee, and I am joined today by our co-host, Kelly Van Beek. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Marsha. I'm excited to have you here uh, as a first-time co-host. Thanks for hopping on. Yeah, humbled to be here and uh, excited for the first for the first one, maybe of others, Marsha. That would be fun. That's the plan. You've got a very radio voice, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> uh, before we dive in, can you do a short introduction for our listeners? Sure. Uh, so my name is Kelly Van Beek. I am an Artemis ambassador based out of Southern Wisconsin, the Madison area, and have been an ambassador for about the past year. Um, I am a professional wildlife biologist that, uh, for my day job to pay the bills, but also just very interested and um, attempt to be active in bringing other women into uh, outdoor recreational spaces, things like hunting and camping. Um, so yeah, I was tickled that I got to be a part of the ambassador crew last year and hopefully a couple more couple more events you'll see flying on the radar in Wisconsin in the next couple months. Fantastic and you crushed it with that last um, cleanup work party that was amazing. Uh, so it was excited. a super great day yeah. yeah I'm excited to see what we can do in, in 2022. Our guest today, I'm very excited to talk to, uh, Sarah parker Polly. Thank you so much for joining us. It is my pleasure to join you as well. We like to start out our podcasts with kind of a, a, an easy warm-up question just to get the gears turning. Can you tell us what's one of your favorite things about spring in Missouri? Oh, that is so easy. That is an easy one. For me, it is spring turkey season, which for us starts next Monday. Nice. And so my husband and I will be headed to uh, the camp where we always spend opening day and I'll scout over the weekend and maybe scout for a few morel mushrooms along the way. Um, but boy, I love this time of year and, and uh, just love to be out listening for that first gobble on opening day. Oh, so that's the what I'm excited sound. about. <laughs> nice. Um, I, I have only been hunting turkey for the last three years. This will be my fourth year um, during spring turkey season, and I have yet to be successful, but it has just being in the woods uh, at that time of year when all the wildflowers are just starting to bloom. And like you said, the morel mushrooms are coming up and the mornings are still crisp. It's really, it really is a fascinating and fantastic time to be in the woods. Sounds successful, Marsha. I don't know how you're defining success when you say that, but it sounds like uh, that's fair. How darn successful. <laughs> I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Yes. Um, I have yet to, to tag a turkey, <laughs> but in every other way, it's been very successful. Uh, good luck, Sarah. Those are tricky little buggers. Thank you. Well, so I have been hunting them for 30 years and my knees still knock when I have a bird coming in and my heart still pounds. And the day that that stops happening, I'll stop turkey hunting. For but sure. my guess is it's not going to happen while I'm still upright and breathing. What kind of call do you use? So I use mostly slate calls. I have, you know, diaphragm mouth calls and I have box calls for windy days or, you know, rainy days if I just need something a little louder. But by and large, mostly different types of glass or slate calls. I am just, again, because I, I am still fairly new to turkey hunting and I still sound like a pretty sick hen on the slate call, <laughs> but they just you get curious. Yeah. Marcia, you would be surprised. I have heard some hens call where I think, oh my goodness, that is a rookie turkey hunter because that sounds awful and lo and behold it is it is it's an actual little thing it's a real thing so so don't uh don't assume that that doesn't sound like sweet music to a <laughs> I like that idea uh Sarah can you tell us a little bit about who you are 
Sure. Um, so I serve currently as the ninth director of the Missouri Department of Conservation. Um, prior to that, I served as the director of the Missouri Department of Natural Resources. And here in Missouri, conservation includes fish, forest, wildlife. Um, the DNR includes state parks and the environmental uh, functions of a state, including the Energy Center and Historic Preservation and a few other offices. So um, I've had the privilege of serving as the director of either agency for about a dozen years, about um, five and a half, almost six years in this current role. But I have served the vast majority of my 30-year career in public service, and most of that in the natural resource conservation field. I'm past president of the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and very active um, in, with the Midwestern states, uh, Midwest Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, and happy to join you. That is, first off, thank you for all of the amazing work that you do. I always appreciate anything agency employees do for conservation across the country, but specifically directors, because that is an exhausting job and you've been in it for a while. So what's your secret? <laughs> I think my secret is maybe not taking myself too seriously. I don't know. It, you know, it, it does begin to, uh, to wear on you after a while. And, and my husband, who's been retired a few years, um, says, you know, just wait until you retire and then you can really enjoy the hobbies and the resources that you spend all of your time mm. protecting. And, and he's right on the, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, I am so driven by mission and purpose that it, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine retirement. It'll come mm -hmm. and it'll come sooner rather than later. But um, I think even in retirement, I'm looking forward to continuing my work in the conservation field, yeah. I think. But, you know, it's serving at this level. You really have to be driven by that purpose and uh and just really, I think, in love with your staff. And by that, I mean, I just, I so admire the public servants that I have the opportunity to work with, especially in the natural resource field. Same, I felt the same way at DNR, where we have very um, low turnover in, in those agencies because people tend to come into those fields, as you both know, typically out of purpose and mission and tend to, to just really care about what they do day in and day out. And so it's, I think, a lot easier to lead an organization that is so purpose-driven as compared to maybe other organizations. I just, I'm, um, every day, I just, I find things about my team that are just amazing. And it's, it's been a privilege to serve with them. I appreciate that so much as a, uh, I was a executive director of a school for many years and, and just kind of feeling the same thing for the teachers that I worked with. And I think anytime a director starts by expressing admiration for their team um, is, is just a beautiful sign of leadership and culture. Thank you. I, so I, I mentioned when we set up this podcast that this will air smack dab in the middle of our leadership series, and there are a million and five different tangents about leadership that I would love to go on with you right now, because I think that could also be a wonderful conversation. Uh, however, we are actually today going to talk about another important and uh, uh Fun topic? Sure. It's fun. Funding is always fun. We're going to talk about conservation funding and specifically Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Uh, but before we dig into that, I think in order to fully understand the impact uh, or potential impact that Recovering America's Wildlife Act could have, it helps to have an understanding of how state conservation agencies do the very, very big job of setting up their conservation plans. So can you paint us a picture of how you draft the wildlife conservation plans and how objectives are prioritized. Absolutely, and every state's gonna be a little bit different, Marcia, in that regard in developing what we call state wildlife action plans or SWAPs as the acronyms go. Um, 
but they really are focused and, and, you know, let's say in Missouri, we go through a very um, robust strategic planning exercise. I mean, we actually take a hard look at our strategic plan every year, but more specifically related to um, the habitats and the species that depend upon those habitats, every state has responsibility for identifying species of greatest conservation need and then the habitats that those species are dependent upon. And they submit those state wildlife action plans or swaps to the US Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, it has to be approved by the Fish and Wildlife Service. So we take a, really a deep dive into the species that we have responsibility for. Um, we, you know, through monitoring, through uh, population assessments and monitoring, um, do our very best job to identify those species that are doing well, and then the species that are not doing as well, and that are either rare or endemic or in decline. And those species that are not doing as well, that um, they're in trouble or, or they're in decline, um, those really those species are the focus of state wildlife action plans, and so there'd be a lot of other um, plans related to game species that are, are doing fine. And but related to Recovering America's Wildlife Act or related to state wildlife action plans, it really is our our assessments and our plans for trying to um, keep species off the endangered species list trying to turn around uh, declining trends and, uh, and, and take care of those species that are in trouble. And there's a lot of those species out there. I mean, states have identified over 12,000 species of greatest conservation need. Mm. Even in Missouri, where we think, hey, we're, we're doing pretty well. I mean, we still have um, over 680 species of what we call conservation concern that would be included in those state wildlife action plans. And that's considered doing pretty well. That still feels like a huge <laughs> It's pretty number. scary, isn't it? Yeah. It's really pretty scary, yeah. Uh, so I'm curious if you could take, because uh, I know if, an, if a species gets to the point where they do need to be put on the endangered species list, then there are definitely ramifications for that. Is there, could you walk us through that with an example in Missouri? Um, about if a about a specific species that's of concern right now, um, and what that looks like, and what could happen if they don't get the funding they need. Right. Well, and so we do have uh, Topeka shiner and our hellbenders, and you know a list of species that now would already be included on that endangered species list. And in that case, you're developing recovery plans where you're working with the Fish and Wildlife Service, you might be working with private landowners. Um, if you're on um, adjacent to other public lands where those habitats are on other public lands, you'd be working with those federal land managing agencies to develop a recovery plan. Like what is our best um, option and are those, what are those prioritized actions to see if we can indeed try to recover a species? And, um, you know, sometimes if it's very dependent on private land here in Missouri, 93% um, of our lands are in private ownership. So um, oftentimes if it's a terrestrial species, we are definitely having to work with private landowners to see if we can incentivize uh, certain land practices to see if we can save that habitat, protect those species if it's uh, an aquatic species like a hellbender, then um, we really have to be focusing on water quality. Uh, hellbender is a great example where we're working with the St. Louis Zoo to um, breed hellbenders in captivity so that they can be released again in, in the wild. But I mean, we have examples where high flood events have really been detrimental to certain uh, localized hellbender um, nesting beds, et cetera. So you're, you're still, uh, it, you're still very vulnerable. You're still dependent upon mother nature. You're depending upon, um, other landowners to protect that habitat. You're having to closely monitor and assess, uh, the, the populations and any changes to the habitat. 
Um, it's it's a costly endeavor. I think I've I've heard it said that it's about I mean nineteen to twenty um, uh, million dollars per delisting of of species, and so it's a costly endeavor once a species is on the list. So the whole point is to keep those species off of the endangered off the endangered species list, and that is the primary focus of Recovering America's Wildlife Act is rather than waiting until a species gets into the emergency room and all of the, the resources and the, the financial resources and staffing resources that are necessary at that point in time, let's do a better job of taking care of species before they're in the emergency room. Uh, if we know that they're having problems, how do we spend our resources there? And that is the focus of Recovering America's Wildlife Act, is really focusing on those species that are beginning to show signs, just like maybe we do when we have higher blood pressure or right. we're just starting to see signs that maybe we've got some health issues. How do we do a better job of preventative care? That's the focus mm -hmm. of RAWA. Mm -hmm. Preventative care instead of emergency care. Yes, uh, Kelly, a quick note as co-host is that I have always a million questions, so butt in and interrupt me if you have a question or comment that you want to, to put out there, okay? Don't hesitate. Noted. <laughs> um, I, I do have a, uh, so I think our audience has a pretty solid understanding of how hunting and fishing licenses and excise taxes on equipment uh, contribute to conservation funding. Uh, I personally am a little less clear how it gets allocated uh, to the objectives that the agency has um, once you've got it. Can you can you kind of walk us through that given the, what did you say, 680 species and all of the other uh, lands and waters um, that you're managing as well? the money that, that does come in and how conservation efforts are currently, currently funded, uh, how are those applied? Right, so I'll, I'll try to differentiate a little bit. Um, so now through the, um, what we call the, the WISPR program, which is the Wildlife and Sport Fish Restoration Program, it is those excise taxes on, um, you know, shooting equipment, on ammunition, on, motorboat um, motors and fuel on archery equipment, et cetera. And that excise tax, as you all know, goes to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And then there is a distribution model for every state, uh, but the funds are, they're reimbursed. So we get grants and then uh, 75, 25. So the states have to match at the 25% level. Um, we have typically a two-year cycle to utilize uh, a, a particular grant, and so it, it, it's we're, we're being reimbursed for activities that the state fish and wildlife agencies um, eligible activities uh, being reimbursed through the Fish and Wildlife Service, and that has been an incredibly effective model for some period of time. As you mentioned, Marcia, typically then state. Uh, budgets are fish and wildlife budgets are also supplemented through um, hunting and fishing permit fees, and those two sources typically the primary sources of funding for state fish and wildlife agencies. Now, some states get general revenue funds or general funds from their state coffers. Other states have other sources of funding that really help supplement the budgets for state fish and wildlife agencies, like in Missouri. Since 1976, we have had a general one-eighth of one cent sales tax. And in Missouri, it's a very unique model, but that is more than 60% of our revenues coming mm -hmm. in to the Conservation Commission. And a few other states have um, a, a sales tax of that nature. They might have a tourism tax. So there are some... Um, other sources of funding that a state may take on, but those two primary sources of the WISPR funding coming from the excise tax and hunting and fishing permit fees are still, for most state fish and wildlife agencies, the primary sources of funding. 
but there are some limitations. It is service well, and I always start with that. Boys has been a very successful model over the many decades, but it does have its limitations, um, especially related to hunting and fishing. Revenues, oftentimes there are requirements to um, put that money back into uh, hunting and fishing uh, or to game species. Mm-hmm. And there may be other restrictions as well. And so that has left our non-game species, all of those species that um, are, are not hunted or, or fished, all of those other species oftentimes don't have a dedicated funding source to apply to those recovery efforts. So in comes Rawa. So I would say that the Pittman-Robertson, the Dingle-Johnson um, legislation that really is the backbone of the wildlife conservation model today has served us well, but primarily on the game species side. And through the federal deck stamp, we see that. I mean, the federal deck stamp alone, you've seen this um, nearly 56% increase in, in uh, waterfowl species because there's dedicated funding going to, toward habitat restoration and protection and management efforts related to waterfowl. So we know that when there's a dedicated funding source, and of course in Missouri, we've recovered deer and turkey and elk and so many other species because we had the dedicated funding source. But with the the species that we are talking about today, the species of conservation concern or greatest conservation need, uh, there's roughly um, an assessment was done in around 2015, 2016 to determine um, you know, what percentage of state wildlife action plans can states actually implement based upon the funding source? And it's only about 5%. So wow. that tells you there is this huge gap between the long list of species in our state wildlife action plans and all of the actions we've identified in those action plans. And yet the actual funding source is just simply not there. So that is why we are so grateful around 2015, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies stood up what they called the Blue Ribbon Panel. And it was co-chaired by then Wyoming Governor Freudenthal with Bass Pro Shops Cabela's, President CEO Johnny Morris, he's from Missouri, and just had a lot of different um, uh, corporate, uh, for-profit, non-profit, State Fish and Wildlife Agency representation on that blue ribbon panel to really look at the future of conservation in this country. And they recognized that the current funding model has served game species well over many years, but there was this huge gap in funding and completion state wildlife action plans. And so out of that blue ribbon, those deliberations came this recommendation for needing a new funding model. And now you have uh, legislation has been introduced in the past in the last several years, but this year differently, we really have strong leadership on the Senate side in part with my Senator Roy Blunt from Missouri Mm -hmm. and on the Republican side. And then on the Democratic side, Senator Martin Heinrich from New Mexico. Those two gentlemen have presented this strong bipartisan front on the Senate side, we've had strong House bipartisan leadership in the past, but this year, this congressional cycle, we are really seeing strong leadership in both the House and Senate. And as a result, we are seeing Recovering America's Wildlife Act really making great progress. It was so exciting. I think it was last week, maybe a week and a half ago, um, when it cleared the Senate committee. Yes. Um, it was. Uh, so exciting. It was the um, Environment and Public Works Committee where it cleared 15 to 5. And I think that speaks to, to the true bipartisanship um, embedded in this bill that it passed out of committee um, with 15 to 5 votes, which is amazing. And then again, the previously it was um, from the House Natural Resources Committee where it passed 29 to 15. So again, just a really great bipartisan support for this bill that that addresses something we all care about. And I think that's the beauty of conservation is it really is 
a, a truly bipartisan issue. Uh, you, you know, the, the things that we were kind of arguing about were kind of nuances, but I didn't hear anyone say that state fish and wildlife agencies don't need this critically important funding to save species. Maybe in the end, we're arguing a little bit about how much should go here or there or particular uses, but strong agreement that we care about our species, we care about our, our fish and wildlife, we care about their habitats, that this really is an issue for all of our quality of life. All right, so let's dig into the specifics of Recovering America's Wildlife Act. Uh, can you set us up with uh, the overview of the act and what it includes? Sure, so it, it would mean about $1.3 billion annually to state fish and wildlife agencies. And then there's another apportionment for tribal fish and wildlife agencies. And so roughly the total is about $1.4 billion annually. On the Senate side, those revenues would be coming from um, environmental penalties for environmental violations that right now that money is just going into the general fund. It doesn't have a specific dedicated purpose. Um, between the House and Senate, they might come up with a different funding source, but that is the existing funding source. Um, there is a formula for apportionment that does include uh, number of species of greatest conservation need, and that's both on the animal and the plant size. Um, other factors include how large of a state, how many um, square miles and population, and there's some other criteria as well, but primary factors include just existing need related to um, species of greatest conservation need, including both plants and animals. It would be a 90-10 uh, reimbursement model. So very similar to WISFR, the money would be going to the Fish and Wildlife Service who would then um, allot or apportion those funds to state fish and wildlife agencies. As you can imagine, much of the funding would be focused on habitat protection and or restoration. Um, it could go to private landowners for cost share um, for cost share programs, it can go towards education and recreation. So additional land acquisition is included as well. Can even go towards uh, enforcement or law enforcement, but all of those activities have to be tied back to the state wildlife action plans. So even as, as it relates to education or recreation or enforcement, there has to be um, a direct tie back to how that activity is benefiting those species of greatest conservation need and or their habitats. So every state is um, busily um, making sure that they are RAWA ready. Um, mm -hmm. In Missouri, our state wildlife action plan is very habitat focused. And so we definitely tie our species of greatest conservation need to those habitats. But we know that when we protect the habitat, we protect those species and any other species that are dependent upon those habitats. So we have something in Missouri called the Comprehensive Conservation Strategy, where we have taken all of our data layers of species of greatest conservation need, and we've combined it with our priority watershed data layers, our forest data layers. We've already worked with a lot of our um, partners um, who are also in the conservation business and have taken in their priority landscapes based upon um, on species and, and habitats. And then we've prioritized those landscapes or we prioritize those geographies. So we basically know where we would go to work first. We have tier one, two, three, four, tier four tiers of, of geographies or landscapes in Missouri and tier one being the most important. So um, you know, there's still some work to you figure out kind of the administration side and, and with this additional funding in Missouri, our allotment once we're to fully to full funding would mean about $21 million uh, coming just from RAWA um, annually. And so uh, there is a lot of great work that can be done here in Missouri 
for those species of greatest conservation need. I go back to the fact that we're 93% in private land ownership. And for mm -hmm. us, working with private landowners, we have a private lands program that's really focusing on habitat protection and or habitat restoration. And let's take grassland species as an example. We know grassland bird species are the most imperiled uh, type of bird species there are. And I know Kelly could really speak to that. Well, we certainly have grasslands in the Northwest part and the Western part of the state. And so that would be a key target area for us, not only on public lands, but really targeting habitat protection and or restoration um, for private landers on private lands as well. We can send money to our partners. Um, let's say Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, Quail Forever. They do a lot of great boots on the ground work with private landowners as well, do a lot of technical assistance. So there are some great options and opportunities, I think, with RAWA funding to work with partners, to work with other agencies, to work with private landowners to accomplish our shared priorities. I'm, I'm curious, uh, I, I appreciate the habitat first focus of uh, which obviously it like that's how you make the most difference to the most species um, in the most time effective way right is to provide high quality habitat so they could thrive and overcome some of the other challenges that they face is that a shift uh, in management over the last several decades I guess you know, I, I, it, I think it certainly is. It certainly is here in Missouri. I mean, we've always known that when we are protecting quail habitat, we're, we're protecting habitat for other species. When we're protecting, when we are managing for turkey habitat, that other species benefit for that. But I know certainly in Missouri, the last couple of decades, there has been a shift to um, where are those priority landscapes that we can take care of now or manage for now. And then as a result, benefit, you know, all of the species that are dependent upon those habitats. And you hear a lot about Marshall landscape level conservation, and that is certainly the movement in the conservation arena, where, for example, I mentioned grasslands. We're part of something called the Midwest Landscape Initiative, where we uh, partner with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and, and USGS and other partners as well, but we start with the, the two agencies, the state fish and wildlife agencies, and in this case, the US Fish and Wildlife Service, who ultimately have that legal responsibility for the species. We're the ones with the legal mandate to protect species. And so uh, the Midwest Landscape Initiative is this form by which we come together to identify those shared priorities across our jurisdictional boundaries. Where do we wanna start first? Um, as, as partners in this conservation business and knowing when we leverage efforts and make sure that we're working towards common purposes and not against each other, we get more done. And so um, the Midwest Landscape Initiative, there's, there's something similar in the Southeast, something similar in the Northeast, and of course the Western states have for a long period of time worked on landscape level species conservation. Um, but we, you do hear the conservation community focusing a lot more these days on habitats and then more broadly landscapes for the very reasons that we've been talking about. So you'd also mentioned uh, what full funding would look like or could look like in Missouri. Um, so talking previously about that 5% of funding needs currently being met in most states across the country, would RAWA uh, contribute to full funding or what would that picture look like? It, it really that model that $1.3 billion was the formula that the Blue Ribbon Panel identified to fully fund states in implementing state life action plans. Now states have uh, you know limited staffing capacity now and so uh, you know just to be honest there's a there's a uh, right now with the legislation as it's written both in the House and Senate um, does have, well, actually, I think it's, I don't know about the House version at this point in time, I do know what the Senate version, there is a ramp up by which um, states would start at less than 100%, but then would get to that 100% funding by year four. And states are 
states are quite uh, okay with that ramp up period of time because we're going to need time to go to our legislatures and ask for the appropriation authority to draw down these federal funds. We're going to need additional capacity to staff up, you know, $21 million and all of the things we want to do here in Missouri to implement our statewide action plan. We're going to need more boots on the ground. We're going to need more staff working with private landowners and with our partners. So it takes time. You can't just, especially in, in government, as Kelly knows, you can't just flip a switch and say, hey, we're going to hire 50 new people tomorrow. It, it doesn't quite work that, that quickly in state government. And so we need the time to plan for that additional capacity either the boots on the ground through our additional staff resources or um, boots on the ground through partners, but we don't accomplish conservation without somebody doing the outreach to private landowners or somebody doing the direct habitat work or education work or law enforcement work. It's going to take additional capacity. And so that ramp up is going to allow us to, um, to plan for and implement for that additional capacity. But once we get up to that 100% funding level, we really should begin to show major progress in implementing state wildlife action plans. Yeah. What do you, ex like, uh, <laughs> trying to figure out how to formulate this next question. Um, it's, that's so exciting to hear, um, and I imagine it's exciting to to visualize what it would look like to have a department that had that level of funding. Um, what do you envision as the timeline for impact? Well, and I think I'm going to say I'm going to give a you know kind of a challenge to my other state fish and wildlife agency directors, and we talk about this quite a bit on our calls of are you robber ready? Because if, you know, I think for, let me say it this way. There are state directors who have been around this business for a long time, and there has been some version of RAWA. It was mm. with wildlife yeah. or you meant Karen. And so a lot of my colleagues are like, Sarah, we have been down this road so many times before where we thought we would get funding and it just never happens. So it's not like we're pessimists, but we'll believe it when, <laughs> when we see we'll it. We'll believe it when we yep. see it. And Don't, so yeah. it's just, you know, and so we've been trying to say, and especially with the progress we're seeing this year, you guys, it is more likely, and I've heard Colin O'Mara say this, <laughs> that if it doesn't happen this time around, we don't know what the, the model is or the formula is because he does this beautiful job of kind of talking about when Pittman Robertson first passed and some of the same global um, unrest and, you know, World War II. And so uh, all these stressors and it took certain key leaders in the House and Senate, despite all of these other challenges globally and in the country, because of certain leaders and just the timing of certain things, Pittman Robertson passed and just striking similarities to what we're seeing this congressional cycle with the Senate leadership and with the House leadership and how they're coming together to address these issues. And of course, we've seen some very historic Great American Outdoors Act and other conservation or outdoors legislation passed in the last few years. So there does just seem to be this recognition and realization that if we don't start focusing on our outdoor places and the wildlife resources of this country, then we really are in trouble. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that. But we've been telling our state directors, we know that in the past things haven't happened, but it's very promising. <laughs> we think it's gonna happen. You better get Rawa ready. But those yeah. who are ready, Marsha, those who have plans in place, and I've had a Rawa ready team working at least for the last six months to say, here's how we would spend year one funding, here's how we would spend year two through four funding, here's how we would go about it. And so we have identified those projects that we think we'll call them shovel ready now so that it might not take a lot of additional staffing capacity to get work done. 
we've already got the partners identified. And so we have a plan once those, once the funding comes down to get to work. And we've got other teams working on those longer term plans. But I do think, and there will be a report though, every three years, um, we'll have the states will have to report back to Congress through the Fish and Wildlife Service and through the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. They'll have to report on their work. Um, Congress, both House and Senate have been very serious and I'm glad they have been on the accountability aspects of this. Pittman Robertson, the WISFR program already has like six levels of accountability, but this adds another component to it of ensuring that we are making progress. So states who are more ready now will be able to, mm. to spend those funds a little more quickly. See, optimism pays off again. Yes, <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it's lovely. Uh, Kelly, um, I wanna give some space if you have any uh, comments or questions that you'd like to toss in here. Yeah. Sarah, question for you, just to give folks a, um, I really want listeners to understand the magnitude of this legislation, I guess. And so thinking about, you mentioned Missouri could get, you know, 20 some million dollars annually from RAWA. How, how does that compare to what you're getting from Pittman-Robertson annually or, you know, your permit fees annually or license fees annually? Um, and I know, I recognize Missouri's in a pretty unique position with your sales tax. But again, just trying to give folks an idea that $20 million is, is monumental for many state agencies. Yeah, it absolutely is. And in many cases, Kelly, it might even double um, what they're getting from the, the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, you know, for us, it, it, it will probably... Um, you know, it would be an additional um, maybe fifth of our total budget, which may not sound like a lot, but it is because right now our budgets are very focused on, again, either game species or game programs. Now, because we have the general sales tax, we have been able to move towards uh, non-game species and to, you know, larger habitat related projects. But for some states, this could basically double their existing budgets. And so just imagine what else they'll be able to do. Um, so it, it really is historic funding levels for species that I'm not going to say species of greatest conservation need haven't benefited in the past from management efforts, because I think we've talked enough about how when you're focused on habitats, other species are benefiting, but they haven't had the same focus on, um, you know, population research, on monitoring of those populations, on um, private landowner um, cost share, on, I mean, just all of the things that go into a strong management program, research and management program, um, this list of species simply has not had the same level of attention. So it's going to be a little bit different for every state, but for many states, it is going to be a, for all states, it's going to be a significant shot in the arm with a very targeted species on those species who are in the greatest need of help. Right. And what I appreciate so much about your message too, and really um, pointing out this idea of uh, directed funding, you know, a, a dedicated funding source is not to dismiss or say that we shouldn't continue on in our efforts to recruit new license holders into the fold. I mean, certainly, Marsha, as the Artemis group, yes. we are pushing that to the max, but um, mm -hmm. with the full recognition that we could add so many more hunters and fishers, fisher people to our community, and that still will not make this dent in the mm -hmm. in the cost that it's going to take to conserve these species so not only do we need more folks getting outside and contributing through those funding mechanisms but this additionally will will really help us bridge the gap to get to where we need to be in order to effectively conserve these species that we're collectively responsible for I think that is so well said Kelly and that I mean our hunters and anglers have carried 
way more than their share. Um, for the last 80 years, we have relied upon our hunters and anglers to pay the way for conservation. This now is just a historic step in finding additional monies to supplement the great conservation work that still has to be done. And I think, uh, like, yes, like Kelly mentioned, like we can always welcome new hunters and anglers into the fold because there's no such thing as too much money, right? When it comes to conservation. I haven't uh, seen it, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I would love, you know, again, I think our community understands fully that uh, high quality habitat is, that's good for all species is also good for the hunting and fishing heritage. Uh, and, and so I don't think we need to, to make that argument. I just want to put that out there that when we focus on non-game species, um, the, the species that we pursue still benefit in addition to just the inherent value that protecting and preserving the quality habitat has in and of itself. Um, we, uh, you know, if you think along the lines of save the bird, save the herd, which is a phrase we use often when we're talking about sage grouse and the impact that it will have on mule deer, everything's connected. And, right. and if we can work to, to have the best quality habitat, we will all benefit. Very well said. Uh, we are going to take a very quick break to hear from our partners and we will be right back. Howdy Artemis listeners, this is Aaron Kindle from NWF Outdoors. We know you love awesome conservation conversations. That's why we want to invite you to check out the NWF Outdoors podcast, where we dive deep into the issues, people, and places that showcase the best of the sporting conservation lifestyle. Guests include leaders, luminaries, and decision makers who define conservation and work tirelessly for fish and wildlife. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts or at nwfoutdoors.org. For 125 years, Rio has made shot shells for hunting, sport, and defense using their own premium components. Top shooters like three-gunner Rihanna Kadic, champion clay shooter Tina Jewell, and outdoors woman Taylor Garcia trust Rio to give them the edge on the range and in the field. A full line of target loads like Star Team Evo, hunting cartridges like the popular Texas game load, plus an array of buck and slugs. Now Rio is proud to introduce their pro-eco biodegradable wad to help keep plastics out of the environment. Visit rioammo.com for a complete line of 12 and sub-gauge products for your favorite game. That's rioammo.com. All right, welcome back. Uh, so, so I, I recognize that we are coming up on the hour mark and I wanna start to wind us down. Um, Kelly, did you have any last questions that you wanted to put on the table? Man, that's a lot of pressure given I know, who sorry. we're talking to. Uh, no. <laughs> um, Quick ask everything you've ever wanted to know from I know, Sarah. everything I've ever wanted to ask Sarah about. I, I think maybe one thing we didn't touch on, Sarah, and I know we've, we don't have very much time left, but um, as somebody who works in government service and conservation, as, a, as somebody who identifies as female, to see you in your um, leadership capacity, the first AFWA female president, I think can't be understated to though to other females coming up through the ranks in conservation, how important it is to have that visibility. And so, um, you know, you're certainly over the course of your career, there have been, you've seen it all, you've seen the obstacles that females have faced in the conservation field. And how did it feel <laughs> to reach that, to reach that level of visibility? And are there any other, you know, broadly speaking, I, I don't, I don't like to like, just say, well, what are your really broad lessons learned? And um, I'd rather have asked something more specific that I can't think of right now, but if there was something you wanted to share with other females coming up through, um, coming up through the conservation ranks, what would that be? You know, I just, I think that in this field of conservation, where, and Marsha, you said it earlier when we're talking about everything being connected and we could spend a whole nother hour, I think on One Health and how we are recognizing all the more and the pandemic was just the latest example of that. 
when one aspect of environmental health or human health or animal health isn't healthy, then it impacts the whole. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I, I'm so proud of people are like, well, do you like hearing people say you're like the first woman president? I said, I, I do. I am proud of that. I am proud of that because I, I want other women to know that it is absolutely possible. And not only is it possible, but I think the field of conservation needs need strong women leaders. Um, some of us do communicate a little differently. We do see the world a little differently. I go back to One Health, where we tend to see perhaps the, the connections and can communicate uh, in some ways to, to more diverse audiences. We can, we can um, tell our story a little differently. I just think conservation needs all voices. It needs uh, diverse voices. It needs uh, people who tell their stories a little differently and who use their skill sets and expertise a little differently. It's, it's, it's an all hands on deck. And I had some amazing women mentors when I was coming up through the ranks. I'm so grateful for that. Mentoring uh, younger women is such a priority for me because other women did it for me. And because I see what we as women leaders can bring to the table. And, you know, I have been blessed with just very supportive colleagues. I think even on the Association of Fish and Wildlife side, very supportive of me stepping into that role and doing things maybe a little differently um, and, and wanting to talk about inclusion and diversity and wanting to talk about some of these topics that were near and dear to my heart. And my male colleagues just embraced that and supported me throughout that. Uh, when I came on to the Missouri Department of Conservation, I had a very supportive commission that just uh, saw me for my 30 years of background in this field and certainly didn't select me because I was a woman, but I think in part they saw that, um, you know, I, I had earned the right to be there, but it was also time to see a woman um, heading up the Missouri Department of Conservation and AFWA the same way. And so I just think mentoring is so darn important. I think having forums like Artemis, where we're sharing with one another, we're sharing our lessons learned, or we're, um, you know, we're there to, to help mentor and bring each other along. I think of women like Becky Humphreys, who's the CEO of the National Wild Turkey Federation. I mean, Becky is a role model for me. I mean, she led a, a state agency. She's led a, a national nonprofit now, um, incredibly competent, incredibly strong leader. I'm just, I'm grateful that there have been other women to go before me and I hope I'm doing the same. But the conservation world needs our perspectives. It needs our expertise, our skill sets and our voices. Uh, I had the privilege of talking to Winnie Kessler um, on a podcast uh, not too long ago, who was the first, or who was the first woman to receive the Boone and Crockett Professional Club membership, and uh, also a past president of the Wildlife Society, and hearing the same themes run through the women that we talked to who who have taken on leadership roles about uh, the importance that mentorship played in their own journey and the value they have for doing the same mentoring uh, to those who are coming up through the ranks, but also the, the notion that it's a collaboration amongst everybody um, and that, that the whole community was ready for this change. And that doesn't mean there weren't bumps along the road or, or, or issues to be overcome, um, but that it is uh, something that everybody's excited for and, and desirous of and ready to create space for. And that's really exciting. Absolutely. I think of women who have gone before me where, you're, to your point, maybe, you know, they broke the glass ceilings, but they had a few more bumps along the way. I do feel very fortunate that as, um, as I've come into some of these positions, to your point, Marcia, um, folks were ready and organizations were ready and you just needed to have uh, competent women with a strong desire to, to lead uh, an organization as well. And so 
you know, we have to do our part of being ensuring that we are incredibly competent and that we have the skill sets necessary and the desire and the passion necessary um, to take advantage of those opportunities when they arise. Well, thank you for doing it so well. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Sarah, are there any last uh, points that you'd like to make that we haven't talked about yet? I think we've hit on a lot of things and maybe the only other uh, thing I would mention just in the spirit of, um, of growth and leadership, you had a question for me, Marsha, like what's one thing you're, you're focusing on right now? And uh, I'm going to throw out a concept. Some of you may have read the book by the same title, but it's uh, called Anti-Fragile. And we could probably spend another hour on this topic as well. But um, I believe that the author is Nassim Tlaib, and it's maybe a 2012 book called Anti-Fragile. But the concept in leadership, I think, is a beautiful one. And it's one I want to throw out to the Artemis members. And it's one that I'm trying to work on now. You know, fragile means you think of a package that has fragile written on it. It really does mean treat with care because it's incredibly breakable. And sometimes we think the opposite of fragile is resilient or robust. Like it can take a few knocks, right? But actually in this book, um, he talks about the fact that the opposite of fragile is anti-fragile, which means... I get stronger and better with challenges, with stress, with pressure, uh, with big problems, I get even stronger. So bring it on. And I think that's such a good mindset to have when our time is finite, when our energy is finite, and all of us can get knocked aside so easily through you know, a difficult conversation or through a problem in our organization. But if we take on this anti-fragile mindset where we are really leaning into the pressures of the day, the challenges of the day, and we see them not as just something to get through, but we have this attitude of bring it on because it makes us stronger as a leader and it makes us stronger as an organization. It's a fabulous concept. It's one that I'm working on. I got some work to do, but it's a powerful one. And I throw that out for your listeners. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that because it uh, it take, it redirects, right? Like you can't avoid these. You shouldn't avoid these, uh, because, uh, leaning into it and, um, digging into it is where the real value is and where the growth comes. That's and where exactly the growth right. comes. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. You bet. Um, before we say one final goodbye, I do want to uh, let our listeners know a couple of things. One is you're probably wondering what you can do to help get America's uh, Recovery in America's Wildlife Act passed. Um, and rest assured, we will help you with that. Uh, we will drop an action alert in the show notes where you can reach out um, to your senators and representatives and encourage them to support Recovery in America's Wildlife Act um, when it is ready for a vote. Um, additionally, we are going to put out a couple of events called Conservation and Cocktails, where we hope to get together with everybody virtually, and we will work on, uh, on writing in support of Recovering America's Wildlife Act together. Uh, so we will do a little bit of education on how to write a good opinion editorial, how to write a good letter to the editor, how to craft uh, an email to your representative that reflects your personal story and why this is important to you and why they should support it. Um, so keep an eye out for those events. Um, we look forward to, uh, to getting together virtually um, and supporting you through that process. And as always, if you have any questions, you're welcome to email artemis at nwf.org. Sarah, you should come to a cocktail and conservation party. It'll be fun. That sounds like a blast. I'd love to. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, for having a great conversation and for sharing your knowledge with us. Really appreciate Thank it. Thanks for the invitation, Marsha and Kelly. Great talking to you. Kelly, thanks, thanks for the co-host. Absolutely. My pleasure. All right. To our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Until next week, be bold, stay curious, and get outside.
Thank you.